Welcome to Applying with Shoney B again, coming to you from Sydney, a lovely sunny day here in Coogee, South Coogee. And I've got a great guest today, um, my first guest from the financial industry, would you believe? Somebody who has spent 20 years working across many industries like banking, telecom and accountancy. Most recently, she has spent 12 years at uh, Commonwealth Bank of Australia, rising to become general manager of risk management. She's a sort of uh, risk manager who's not afraid of risk and isn't afraid to take chances. We're today talking about the future of leadership primarily, but also uh, her story. She's uh, been part of a committee that has put together a Generation of Corporate Female Leaders program uh, review of the future of leadership with an eye on what it's going to be like in 2030. So we're going to talk a bit about that. I'm very pleased to welcome to the podcast Trina Edgar. Hello. Is this your first podcast? This is my first podcast. There you go. It's the future. (laughs) It's the future. And my sister works, I think, for Lloyd's in London. And I think, this is Bronwyn. Hello, Bronwyn, if you're listening. And I think she works in risk management. And I have no real idea what that is. And she doesn't really seem to be able to tell me very well. I jokingly say, is that about getting passwords? Into the, she's an IT risk management. This is about getting passwords. Tell me what risk management is, first of all. Risk management is really a very big embracing topic. Risk management is trying to reduce or mitigate your risks in a really controlled manner. Right. But in banking and in the, any financial institution, we have to take risks. But they mm. need to be calculated and yeah. they need to be mitigated where possible. It could be credit risk right. where deals go bad. It could be product risk where we put a product out there and it just goes bad or yeah. it's not well structured. Uh, I worked really in the strategy and um, modeling policy area, mm-hmm. a lot to do with reporting, but it is basically all encompassing way of actually managing and controlling risk right. in any organization. So I can't have a banker on the on the program without going straight into the big short, the collapse of the Irish economy, the role banks had to play. Clearly, a major error in risk management. I would say so, <laughs> and this is why we need to be looking differently at all aspects of risk. Yeah. And in the big short, those were examples of where someone actually was created in looking behind the scenes as to what could really go wrong. Yeah. And he was right. Uh, but, but he could equally have been wrong. Yeah, but if he'd been wrong, we wouldn't know about it. But the House of Cards nature of the collapse is just kind of baffling. When you talk about risk management and banks, you think risk-averse. But in many places, they're not risk-averse at all. They're like casino gamblers high on adrenaline. Absolutely, and I think that is that is the challenge that we're going to have because our economies are changing, our environments are changing, our markets are changing. There's the big rise of all of the South American and uh, you know Russia and India and China. All of those company countries are coming to the forefront, yeah. and they're going to be looking at different things. Mm. Technology is offering a new platform for people to connect, yeah. and I think that is we have to go and look at those particular areas and but manage the risk where we can. There's a lot of gamblers out there in some shape or form, uh, but it needs to be controlled. Tell the listeners about this survey that you just did or this study that you just did. You kindly gave me a copy last night and believe it or not, uh, I read it this morning. But why don't you tell me a little bit about the um, metamorphosis of that, why you did it and 
who you did it with. So uh, this all started with I went to a conference last year, and the conference was around leadership into 2030, and it took us into this big innovation lab, and it projected three different um, types of businesses going forward. It was a Japanese, a Japanese investor working uh, in Japan, but actually was able to survey all his wine crop from his desk in Japan, and it was in South Australia. Uh, there was another one where someone walked into a cafe, and basically he didn't have to order, he didn't even have to speak to the waiter. His contr- he was basically, had a chip in his hand, and yeah. basically that could make the order for him. So it was all, and then there was this other um, incident where it was to do with um, a farm, basically surveillance on farms where we, you know, you know the temperature and of the soil and, and everything yeah. else, and they were really doing farming in a new creative way. Mm. Now, what was really interesting is that scared me completely. Mm. I was really quite frightened. I was like, oh my God, this is a world that I do not recognize and it is changing. And I really don't know about this. Mm. So when I did the Women on Boards um, program, you were asked to basically pick up a topic that you were passionate about. To me, the topic was really about curiosity. I was really curious about it. The one thing that shocked me the most was a quote, humanity will change more in the next 20 years than in whole of man. Yeah, I saw that. That was absolutely floored me. So because of that, then that started to feed, and then the other girls that were working with me, we just did a lot of research. Yeah. And what we realized and what we became really interested in is these mega trains are coming, but they're having a massive impact on how we're going to lead. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the topics were globalization, digital enterprise, and human augmentation, the pace, pace of change, war on talent, and individualism. Yeah. Those are really big topics that will contribute yeah. to our world. But are we looking? Are we listening? Are we actually um, focusing on them? I yeah. would say not. We're so caught up in this world where it's this fast pace, we're actually not looking forward. There's a trundling element to running organizations where, in my experience, where everyone loves to talk about change. When I read this paper, and it is a very good paper, and it's very it's well worth reading. I don't know, is it available to the yes, public? Or? It is. I'm going to be putting it, I'm, I'm going to be putting it up in the next week or so. Onto LinkedIn. On, onto LinkedIn. Okay, yeah. so it's a, it's about a fifty-page paper, and it, as, as Trina said, it covers these six buckets and then goes into them in detail and talks a little bit about you know what you can do and the implications for the organisation. My first, and I said this to you before we press record, my first interpretation of it was that there that a lot of this stuff is the sort of stuff that we've been saying in management discussions for maybe the last twenty years, like. You know, the change is upon us and we have to look after our people better and we have to be better about hiring. I mean, a lot of those things are true. They were true back then, but the organizations themselves have almost paid lip service to a lot of these things. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. We've been told this for years that we should be looking after people, we should invest in them, we should be thinking about them in, in a different way. We're using this command and control approach all the time and I'm still seeing it. The companies to me that are the big ones probably are the loudest in saying we want to embrace change and they never do it. What experience have you got of just banging your head against a wall and oh that's grand now we've got some innovation there from this team but meanwhile on with the show the way it's always been. Well I guess I've come from an organisation that is really good on innovation to the outside market. Right. So what's really what people don't see is behind the scenes. And so we talk about being an innovative society and, and, uh, and company, but what do we do inside? And internally, our systems are dated, yeah. they're old, 
they basically do not deliver what we could, what we seem to be delivering outside. Mm -hmm. And there is a case of you're banging your head against the wall because the investment is not in those internal systems, they're putting it to the external systems. And that continues and continues. And and people just, because of old systems, they just add and strap more stuff on, which makes it even more convoluted. Um, Our organisation is basically encouraging us to speak up, but we don't know when you speak up whether or not that is actually really manifesting in the right positive behaviour. I'm not sure. I know that within our organisation, people are recently paid, and in some comparisons, you know, some semi-senior people at um, a financial institution would be getting paid more than a CEO in a big organisation externally. So bankers are, are generally well paid, and managers feel like you push them that bit harder you know, mm. you're getting enough paid so you know these these financial institutions can actually attract so much talent but talent that is probably if left in the market and somewhere else could have added so much more value mm. sometimes you get into a financial organization and they just become a number that just churns out stuff churns out new sales and new revenues and all that kind of stuff if you just become a number. But I think that's where it's coming. Mm. They talk about banking not being here in 20 years. They talk about it, you know, just being a, a commodity that is actually easily uh, adapted and, and really don't need these big branches. And So bank, I would say banking will be disappearing. 40% of the companies that are here today will not be here yeah. in 10 to 15 years' yeah. time. Yeah. So we need to be looking for those new ideas and those new companies and that's where we need to be putting our talent as an economy mm-hmm. into those new things. And I think Australia is trying to do that by, by you know, giving funding to innovation and innovation awards. But have we got it right? I don't think no. so. And that's where you need to get these young people who've got you know, new ideas and, and different ways of thinking about things into these organisations and give them a voice. Mm-hmm. At the moment, in some of these organisations, they don't have a voice. They are the junior people at the bottom, the senior people are at the top and they still continue to stay there. Yeah. And they're not thinking outside the box. Well, they're thinking about them the last 10 years they have left or the last 20, you know, they're trying to get to the end game of retirement without any, and anything that rocks that boat that affects share price, that affects share options, whatever. I mean, particularly your focus is on leadership. I mean, the, 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 the six um, megatrends, globalization is really, I guess, the, the, the future one. demand for, you know, for coming out of India, China, the BRIC countries, but also the emergence of Africa, digital enterprise, you know, human augmentation, all this kind of stuff about how technology is changing, how we behave as people. And, you know, one of my guests talked about the singularity approaching, which is, of course... Uh, sentient robots and you know uh, well that's human augmentation and I love this is yeah. the, if I'm really excited about one time that was the topic that I yeah. was most excited yeah. about because we think of machines and they're you know they're going to take over the world they're not going to take over the world mm. they're going to get they, they deliver something that we do as humans today better than what we do but they're not going to be a source of enduring and competitive advantage we need the brains for that the, the machines can't do that yeah. and um, until we actually get an acceptance of Actually, you know what? We should put as much to machines as possible. We still need the people. We just need them in a different mm. capacity. I mean, I, I take it. We, we, the issue of you know chips embedded into us, maybe in our brain, all that kind of stuff. Stephen Hawking and a lot of these people are actually deeply concerned about uh, ro- about robots getting uh, maybe a stupid, but you know, like one of these very rational brains that you sometimes meet from time to time who have no maybe EQ, but can still make decisions. And then the sort of decisions they make, for example, 
missing the nuance of hitting a nuclear button and missing the fact that two people talking might be able to solve it. There's a very rational one plus one equals two, bang, I hit the button back, right? I mean, that's a very extreme case. Yeah. Those but it's a bit scary, though, that a chip would be in our hands. Yeah. Would, you know, that's, we're looking at two year, a year and a half away. Yeah. But it's not inconceivable, is it? No, no. I mean, I, can, I think, well, I would actually say it's inevitable. Hmm. Uh, I would just be very concerned about the big brother element of that I mean they talk about if you had a chip inside you people know where you are all the time people but they know where you are today with not mobile well, people have you can mobile. leave your mobile at home yeah but generally people have their mobile now yeah, attached no, to their no, hand no, no, no. but they said that they could maybe kill somebody by pressing a button and that person gets exterminated like you know it's how far does it go it's great if it's just I don't need to take out my credit card I can I can zap my lights from like Harry Potter when I come in home, but it's the sort of downside, the control over 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 mass protests, the control over anything like that. You know, if you if you incapacitate people, the Manchurian candidate. You know, so it's all it's been it's been around in science fiction. Those of you listening um, will probably the more astute listener will uh, detect a accent in my guest today. Uh, it is from Northern Ireland. She is, she is from Tyrone. Is that correct? Yes. What was it like growing up there? Very difficult. I kind of grew up in the troubles in an yeah. area of Northern Ireland that had a lot of terrorism on mm. our back door. We were we were you know next door to uh, an area that was very political and. Yes. The secret of growing up in Northern Ireland is not to get involved in any yeah. related things whatsoever. Yeah. And you, unless you're caught in a crossfire, you basically are Keep left alone. Down. Keep your head, you know, yeah. and just do not get involved. And I think that's the secret of just being. It was a pretty scary place now that you look back on. Yeah. Really scary, you know, when you accidentally ride your bicycle up to your grandmother's house and you're in the middle of the Bobby Sands. You know, funeral that yeah. you didn't know was coming because yeah. no one had warned you as a kid that you shouldn't be travelling on that road. So yeah. those are, and, and when you're driving to school and you know you've seen uh, you know an army truck blown up on the side of the road, yeah. those are. Uh, and one of my big memories of being a kid in in a place called Dungannon was there was a code that if you're in a supermarket as a kid, you saw a kid in a supermarket and the bomb alerts went off, you grabbed that kid and you took them with with you. Uh-huh. So when I was probably, I think I was probably six, and I can still see that the supermarket, the alarm went off. My mum was nowhere, nowhere near me. I'd obviously ran around another aisle. Yeah. This lady grabbed me, and I can remember just seeing my feet just trying to touch wow. the ground. But she was travelling, and she basically we all ran out of the supermarket, and then the police said everybody down in the middle of the town square. And the supermarket went up over the top of this. Shakers. And this lady basically shielded me. She threw me on the ground and she put her whole body over the top of me. Wow. So that was blown out, you know, over over us and our faces were all sooty and was there many killed? Six no, there was no one killed, they got them out. Yeah. Um but that was quite you know, a, a scary memory. It's interesting the way that you know, but back in the day those instruments who probably don't know what was going on up there, it was you know, it was, there was a uh, the IRA terrorists were, were, were um, and, and loyalist terrorists were, were at each other's throats but they used to generally when they were putting a bomb in a public place they would generally try and ring in a warning 
Whereas today, with our friends in ISIS, uh, it's it's just cold blood and it just goes off. I mean, it's interesting to see the way terrorism has, has, evolved. has evolved. The idea that innocent women, children, and and uh, civilians uh, get get blown up and that was still seen as that's not good. It, it, it stokes more hatred and, and whatever. But blowing up infrastructure or you know disrupting things with bombs and stuff like that. And yeah, lots of people got killed. But, uh, I mean, compared to today, it's kind of moved on when you fly. So one of the signals back in, in Ireland that we used to always be scared of, we saw a car with the doors open. That was, that a, was a sure sign. Sure sign. Yeah. Everybody... Or a weighted boot. If the, if, if the, if the, well, yes, but yeah. I, it was always an end. I remember coming home from university in Scotland and was driving past this hotel and they'd blown up to snow the rains. So I had no job that Christmas, um, but they'd blown up. That was where you worked at Christmas, wasn't it? Yeah, I was, a wait- I was always a waitress when I came home from university. Yeah, yeah. And they blew it up, so... Anyways, I say Northern Ireland is riddled with peace at the moment. Um, They're trying to sort it out and have been for about uh, the last uh, 15 years. I must say, I didn't, when I was growing up in the South, um, we we weren't exposed to it to the same extent down in Dublin, but I never believed in my lifetime it would actually sort itself out. Not that it is fully sorted out, but it's certainly a lot better than it was when you, you and I were growing up. You also have a number of caps for Ireland, don't you, in a certain sport? Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I um, took up women's rugby union back when I um, graduated from university. What did you do in university? You I went to did, Scotland, did you I say? I went to university in Scotland, Stirling University of Scotland. Right. And then I got a scholarship to the University of Kansas. Mm. Uh, that was quite interesting. Um, to do what? I, to do economics. I got okay. to, my exchange year, you get a they had a number of scholarships and interesting those three of us one, one I went to Kansas and or the Wizard of Oz it was, it was a very, very weird being in Wichita Kansas yeah. at Christmas Day oh, and yeah. watching Wizard of Oz uh, but that was a very interesting being in the Midwest and um, it was a beautiful university and just embracing the whole American lifestyle very exciting what age were you? oh I was actually 17 Brilliant. I was just under the yeah. the 18 mark but at 18 I was then able to drink in the States but what was more interesting is I sold books door to door in Bowling Green Kentucky oh. um, to get my money to get some money to get back home again what sort of books? children's books and cookbooks and so I had enough money to get home and pay all my debts and everything and how, tell me about the rugby then so the rugby so uh, when I went to university or after university I, I started my chartered accountancy exams in London and basically I needed to get some eyeglasses. So I turned up at a rugby club and within two years I got into Irish Exiles and within another year I was playing right. in Ireland in the first World Cup. It right. was a real shock to be kind of accelerate that much, but I played... Are the Kiwi first. girls brilliant at rugby? Well, we didn't play... Oh, I did no, play... Are they the best in the world as they, well? I don't know where they are now. Americans probably are good. Americans were amazing. Yeah. I played against America in the, um, in the World Cup and... It was really interesting. In the rugby, you have the the forwards are bigger and the the backs that are slimmer. Mm. In America, in the American team, they're all the same. They're all big, and yeah. you did not let them get out. If you give them one foot, um, you basically you, they have try. They were right. big, sporty girls. But equally, the Kiwis are there. Right. Now the Kiwis have really made it. So how did we do in that? What, what World Cup was that? That was nineteen ninety four. Right. So did we, we do any good? Uh, we probably came. Six or seven. But what's really interesting, um, the Irish Union got behind the girls' team, and mm-hmm. last year, was it last year? 
the men want the the the, um, the Tri Nations, and so do the women. Right. So they've gone full circle to really they've got investment now, and basically they're Irish women are putting money behind it. Great. Back then, it was really we had to pay for our own way to get to Dublin. Interesting talking about rugby, which is the only sport historically, well, one of the only major sports in Ireland that actually is um, representing North and South of Ireland, represented on the Irish team. Other sports have separate um, codes for Northern Ireland for the South, so rugby is a little bit of a unifier in, in Ireland, right? It's interesting, though, I have to tell you this, that the men would sing um, the United Anthem, but the women never would. And uh, it was interesting. So, what's, what anthem did you sing? Oh, we. Uh, Are on the wind. Yes. So, Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland is part of Great Britain. So, the national anthem for anyone from Northern Ireland uh, on this sort of unionist divide would be "God Save the Queen." And the national anthem in Ireland is Our On The V, which is Gaelic for soldier song. And the rugby guys got together, the men, the men got together and said, look, just to make it not too confrontational, we'll come up with a new sort of anthem for rugby, which was called Ireland's Call or yes. something. Is it? So was that, was that difficult for, uh, for Northern Irish people to have to uh, sit there and sing I, that? Well, it was actually. Uh, I just, from where I come from, my roots, I just wouldn't, I never did sing it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the girls had a lot, we had a lot of fun with it though because what happened you could make up fake lyrics no I, we would they would have a little choir practice and then there would be me and this other girl uh, and we would sing we just jokingly God save the queen while they were doing that <laughs> and so we had a lot of fun with it and then when when we were actually standing before the game and the cameras the TV yeah. cameras were on for some reason they always seemed to zoom in on me but because they probably <laughs> they probably knew that the, you know, see what this girl's going to say because they, it, it, I know for anyone listening it sounds petty and it sounds ridiculously childish at this, but it is a big deal like uh, the national anthem God's sake so what was your first job out of college then my first job was uh, in a charter of accountancy role um, and then I went on to international tax Right. Sounds really but exciting. Really, well, you know what? I always feel like I'm a square, pot, or a square peg in a right hole in all of my career in that I have this energy and this positivity that doesn't always fit with those type of roles. But guess what? You make it in those roles because you're different. Yeah. And, you know, you do... I always give 120% in anything mm-hmm. I do. And so... You know, opportunities always picked up, mm-hmm. and opportunities where I go from, you know, chartered accountancy into uh, into tax. And I loved working in British Telecom. I loved it. Mm-hmm. I worked in mergers and acquisitions from a tax lens and did deals in Dublin and everything. But then, you know, this whole going back to the rugby that has kind of picked up and guided me on my pathway because I came to Australia to support the British Lions. But when I got to Brisbane, I realised my life, my new chapter, just about, was just about to begin. And for some reason, Why? because I just, I don't know how do you describe that, but it's something, there's a feeling inside that's like, this, something, this feels right. Mm. And it feels right because, uh, you know, when I decided eventually that I was going to emigrate back, everything worked. I got a job, I got a visa easily, I got all of that stuff. Mm. And I believe that rugby led me to that decision because I wouldn't have been here otherwise. Mm has led me to that position and I'm alive today because of it because I got really sick with breast cancer twice and if I had if I hadn't had the medical care that I've had here I don't think I'd be alive today really? so I have this big thing that's going to happen in my life that I am you here you mean versus the UK yes my mum got breast cancer at the same time I lost her when oh, I was going through it 
Both of us diagnosed within six weeks. What of age were you when you first got breast cancer? I'm 34. God. So. And she had it the exact same time. She had it two years after me, and then three years later she got it back. I was going to go back to Ireland to basically support her. She said, no, you have to get your checks done. You've got your five year coming up. When you get to the five year, it's generally, you know, you're in pretty good shape if you get to the five years. I was diagnosed again at the five year slot. So within three weeks of each, my mom being diagnosed, I was diagnosed too. And you've got to listen to your, you've got to listen to your head sometimes and your heart. I had a discussion with my oncologist. We, we always got on, but that day I was really annoyed with her. She just did something that, you know, kept me waiting for two and a half hours and all of that. And I was really angry that day. And I was angry that day and my partner said to me, why don't you just hold off on chemo? Why don't you just delay it? If I hadn't delayed that chemo just even then, I wouldn't have been at a funeral. I wouldn't have been there. And I think sometimes... So you explain why. Because I, I had that gut feel that something wasn't right. Yeah. That gut feel and that decision I made was defer your chemo. And because I deferred my chemo, I was then able to go to a funeral. She died three months oh, later. Oh, okay, okay. You cannot get on a flight ah. on chemo because your white blood cells are basically depleted. Ah, and right, they pick okay. up any type of, okay. any type of um, infection. So tell me about how... Because I think you're the first person who's a survivor of cancer who I've had on the show. Um, tell me a little bit about that and the impact it has on you and how you got through it and what lessons you learned. Uh, the lessons I learned was to be positive. I never really believed it was the end. And, so, mm-hmm. and I didn't go into that you know, self-destruct mode. And I think when you go into that self-destruct mode, that is the beginning. You're giving your body permission to keep going with cancer. I got the best treatment. I went with everything I possibly did. But I also discovered other things. I did, I learned to do meditation. I did all the Chinese um, herbs. But the one thing that I think has probably saved me the most is emotional cleansing. It's a technique where you actually unleash all memories that are probably trapped in your body from wherever. And in one of the cases... I went after it was all over and I was kind of like, well, what now? You know, and my naturopath said, well, I want you to read this book. And I read this book called The Journey by Brandon May. And um, I read this book and it's a technique where this lady had actually cured herself of cancer by this deep meditative technique. And I went to this conference and I was sitting there in among 600 people and the lady said, well, why are you here? And for some reason, I just jumped up. And I went, I want to know why this happened to me. But then I got, because of that, I got the best lady who was in her field at actually this cleansing. And she took me, she, she took me on. And one session, we had one session where it took me three hours to drop. But you feel as if you're dropping inside your own body. And basically, she unleashed a memory of me when I was 16 years old, when something not so um, good happened to me. And she took me back to that memory, and I could see the colors, I could smell, I could see the lights, I could see hear the voices, I could see everything in that memory. And what she'd done, she'd taken me back to that memory so I could forgive it. Mm. So she opened the box, and she basically unleashed that memory, and then... Was it traumatic? It was really traumatic, and the tears came, and the tears came. And once the tears came, there was no stopping the tears. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, then when I, I went through the whole process of, of, of forgiving and, and moving back and then closing it back up again, I can tell you, she said to me, you're going to feel pretty awful for the next couple of days. I had no idea what she was going to talk about, what she was talking about. I could not get out of bed for the next two days 
because what I felt like there was something creeping underneath my skin wow. and what was happening is it was probably this incident that was trapped in my body and the only way I can think of it is the body was releasing it and after three or four days after coming back to normal I felt like I was walking on air and it was this amazing like coming alive feeling it felt like something had just been lifted out of my body and so I have have proceeded over the last 10 years to do this cleansing every every two to three months and I'm going on Saturday to just make sure that you know I'm just doing this maintenance check of just cleaning stuff out but I I can tell you um, there was one incident when I got diagnosed the second time after my mum and I did this session I basically went to see her I couldn't even speak I was in so much fear I was just fear was just consuming my body I didn't know what to do I didn't know what you know whether did I have a mastectomy what did I have to do and she basically sat me down on the sofa the same woman the same woman and she went and got a bucket and I was like why do you need a bucket and she said you'll see and so what she did was she basically took me through the session and she allowed me to drop into it and I can tell you, it was all I could see was blackness. And wow. it, what I realized now, it was, it was just deep meditation. It's a technique of deep mm. meditation. Anyway, she basically helped me there and just dying in this kind of space. And she said, right. Um, and I said, my, I, said my, I feel like my hand is going to explode. And I can feel my body just getting bigger and bigger. And then I felt really sick. And she said, hold it. And she said, hold, hold. And she made me hold for five minutes. I had nothing in my tummy. But she said, you've got to hold it. And what she was, what was happening was, she was making me face the fear. And she made me face the fear, and it was just so real. Just like, felt my body was just about to explode. And once she said, hold, hold, and then I said, I can't hold. So I ran to the bathroom, and I was really ill. Really? And I sat back, and I actually used the bucket yeah. there, and then I had to run to the bathroom because it came out of me the other side too. Right. So it was coming out of me at the top, and it was coming out of me at the bottom. And it came out of me in like waves. Right. And then after about an hour, I got myself all cleaned up. And I sat down on her sofa and I closed my eyes and all I could see was a sea of purple. I was at peace with it. Wow. I felt like I could now make a decision. And I went the next day and made massive decisions about my treatment and where I needed to go. Mm. But that technique of cleansing, I think I'm alive today because of that. I unleashed the fear I wasn't faced with that every day. I was actually dealing with what I needed to do. And so massive techniques. So during my whole treatment, I did all the chemo I could do. I did the radiation. I did Chinese herbs. I did meditation. I did everything I could possibly could. And I believe I'm here today. If I'd had that same experience in Ireland, in the UK or Ireland, I don't think I would have got there. And there's a reason today. And that's why I'm, I'm really excited I'm a very positive person and I went through that with real positivity but I believe my life is being extended twice for a reason and yeah. there's something fantastic for me to do yeah. out there in this world that I didn't get my life extended just to be you know a manager or a general manager in risk management yes. I have something bigger in life to happen and it's coming and it's coming it's coming I can feel it we'll link the um, we link the uh, name of that book uh, on the blurb for the podcast I'm sure you'd agree that people who are going through this terrible disease the more resources they can or people they can listen to who come through are you through it now? I am I'm, well I go for my tests again next month right. but I would love I've written the first chapter of my book great <laughs> and, and I have showed it to I have showed it to like five you know showed it to a number of people and they just I said do not read this in a cafe and they said why not I was like because 
you'll be in tears. Uh-huh. And the first chapter is written, but I'm, you know, Darcy and I have structured another part to it. I just have not come back Darcy to it. Darcy is your husband. My partner. My yeah. partner, your partner. Uh, and uh, I have, that's something that I need to finish. Okay, I need to it. finish it. Yes. Uh, and it's called Danger Boobs. Danger Boobs. Da- Danger Boobs. I, I think like that's it. the right name for it. Exactly. Um, but that's something that I need, I feel as if I need to do. One of the things that we just, just to finish, we, we talk a little bit on the show. I, I like the idea that maybe the podcast may be of use once I have a lot of them done to, you know, 18, 19, 20 year old people uh, who are trying to work out what they do with life. What would you say to your 19, just back from Kansas self, looking back on your career, what sort of um, advice would you give yourself? I probably didn't give myself enough enough encouragement to push the boundaries in England you kind of get into a rut and you go into this job because that's what everybody else does and you do this and you do that and you kind of fall into rhythm I think I should have just gone travelling explored the world a bit more before I actually settled on what my career was because I have a really I feel and a lot of people say I have a really creative side to me you know in risk management but I'm designing stuff that is not what they do it's looking at things differently I have this innate creative side to me that I don't get to use all the time Mm. so I feel as if I probably put myself in you know this whole financial world when actually I should have been doing something completely different Mm. so do the travel basically question where you're going and not just take the first job that comes along Mm. you know really think about what is it that I want to do and I think that's something I probably didn't give myself permission to do and I think you get into that routine you just need to step out of it Trina Hager, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It was inspiring, that last piece as well. Just, and I think, you know, your point about uh, having a third act, I, I totally agree with that. And I think that actually does link back to some of the things you were mentioning about, you know, the individual and having tools that are, that, you know, tools that we never would have had 20 years ago that can get us into new areas. You can write books, you can publish books. Thank you for being on the podcast. And uh, as I said, I'll link that book and uh, the best of luck in the future. Thank you.